Hello everyone. Welcome back to The Layman's Historian, Episode 27, The Truceless War. Last time, we wrapped up the First Punic War, Carthage's first colossal confrontation with Rome. After 24 years of fighting, Carthage was forced to sign a humiliating peace treaty that not only stripped her of her Sicilian holdings, but also required her to pay a huge war indemnity to the victorious Romans. Today, we will see how this expensive peace was merely the beginning of Carthage's troubles. As we remember from last time, Hamilcar Barca, the foremost Carthaginian general on Sicily, resigned his command at the conclusion of the treaty. He, along with many other patriotic Carthaginians, felt that the Carthaginian Senate had failed miserably due to its lethargic support of Hamilcar's Sicilian campaign. Hamilcar, alone and cut off in the mountains of Sicily, had maintained his army intact for six years, robustly defending Carthage's interests on the island. In return, he received lukewarm support from back home even while he single-handedly maintained one of Carthage's few remaining footholds on Sicily against overwhelming odds. His reputation among the Carthaginian citizenry correspondingly rose due to their admiration of his unbowed martial spirit. Even so, for now, there was nothing left for him to do but to drop his men off at Lilibaeum and return home. At Hamilcar's departure, he left Gizco, the new governor of Lilibaeum, who had replaced the energetic Himilco, to carry out the evacuation of the Sicilian army. With the close of hostilities, Carthage's Sicilian army, once its chief bulwark of defense, now paradoxically posed a serious problem. Carthage owed her mercenaries large sums of back pay, which the financial constraints of the war and Rome's harsh indemnities rendered impossible to pay. A catastrophic defeat on land in Sicily might have alleviated Carthage's financial obligations for the very good reason that most of her soldier creditors would be dead. But the orderly winding up of the First Punic War gave her little excuse for why she couldn't pay up. Besides the Roman indemnities, the treaty requirement that Carthage withdraw all her forces from Sicily meant that she faced the grim prospect of having a massive army of veteran and disgruntled mercenaries on her very doorstep. The sum owed to the mercenaries has been estimated at 4,368 talents, or 26 million drachmas, a colossal amount which, coming as it did with the simultaneous loss of revenues from Sicily, and the turmoil in Carthage's other colonies meant that Carthage could not afford to pay up front. To make matters worse, Carthaginian generals in Sicily, such as Himilco and Hamilcar, had promised extravagant rewards to the troops in order to keep morale high, rewards which a defeated Carthage could not hope to honor. Knowing this, Gizgo, tasked with transporting the troops overseas to Carthage, wisely took the precaution of sending them over in small batches at a time in order to give the government time to pay the men individually and dismiss them to their homelands. 
However, the Carthaginian leaders undid all of Gizgo's carefully laid plans by retaining the new arrivals in the city and quartering them together in the forlorn hope that, if they dazzled them with a lavish welcome in mass, they could convince the mercenaries to accept a reduced amount in lieu of what was owed. Day by day, each shipment from Lilibaeum added to the growing number of grumbling soldiers. But the Carthaginian Senate did not take the danger very seriously. Rather, they remained confident that they could control the disbanded soldiers, since most of the men were made up of barbarian Gauls, Ligurians, and Spaniards, who they thought were out of their element in a sprawling cosmopolitan city such as Carthage. If this was the overriding thought, the Carthaginians were soon proved wrong when the men, with little else to occupy their time, began to vent their frustration on the populace. Violent crimes were committed by day as well as by night, and the citizens threatened retaliation for each injury suffered. With this explosive situation developing in the heart of the city, the Carthaginians requested that the mercenaries relocate to the town of Sica, some a hundred miles southwest of Carthage, in exchange for a small payment to each man. The mercenaries heartily agreed, but they wished to leave their wives and children in the capital since they imagined that they would soon return to collect their payment. In one of those truly idiotic decisions in history, the Carthaginian Senate strongly opposed the mercenaries' proposal since they feared that the men may return sooner than expected, seeking their wives and children. The mercenaries reluctantly agreed to take their dependents with them, although the high-handedness of the Carthaginians aroused a great amount of resentment among the already disgruntled troops. By this blunder, Carthage lost the chance to hold the families of the mercenaries as hostages for the menfolk's good behavior. Worse still, their stubbornness in this affair served only to increase the mistrust and bitterness already rampant in the mercenary ranks. Once the men arrived in Sica, they were allowed to roam at will, free from all military regimens and supervisions. Unsurprisingly, under these conditions, discipline eroded even further and the mercenaries used the time on their hands to calculate the sums they imagined the Carthaginians owed them, increasing their rates to exorbitant amounts which far outstripped what was actually owed. At Sica, the mercenaries received a visit from our old friend Hanno the Great, the acting governor of Africa. This meeting fared poorly, though, for instead of bringing the promised payment, Hanno outrightly rejected the mercenaries' new calculations on the amount owed and sought to excuse the payment obligations by explaining that the heavy war indemnity due to Rome had reduced even the Carthaginians to the state of abject poverty. Understandably, these appeals made little impression and received no sympathy from the soldiers, many of whom now grew dangerously mutinous. The difficulties were compounded by the fact that Hanno could not speak the numerous languages of each contingent of troops. As we have seen before, one of the typical Carthaginian safeguards was to hire soldiers from different backgrounds, ethnicities, and languages in order to decrease their ability to communicate with each other, 
and thus ward off any threats of the mercenaries acting in a concerted mutiny. In each mercenary detachment, Senior Carthaginian officers acted as specialists who studied the language, culture, and attitudes of their chosen troops. As specialist commanders, these officers spoke their men's language, appointed the lower-ranking officers from veteran native troops, and commanded their detachment in battle, and they were responsible for reporting to the senior Carthaginian generals, such as Hanno, for the orders to relay to their men. However, most of these Carthaginian officers had doubtless been dismissed at the end of the war, and Hanno now found himself unable to explain to all the mercenaries at once the status of the situation due to the confusing babble of voices. Polybius describes the situation perfectly, stating that, In the army, as well as the Libyans who made up the largest unit, there were Iberians, Celts, a contingent of Ligurians, and another from the Balearic Islands, and quite a few Greek half-breeds, most of whom were deserters and slaves. It was impossible then to convene a general assembly, or to find any other way to communicate with them all at once. How could it have been possible? Their commanding officer could not conceivably know all their languages, and it was, I dare say, even less feasible for him to address the troops via translators, which would mean repeating every point four or five times. The only option was for him to get the officers to pass on his demands and entreaties. This is what Hanno kept trying to do on that occasion, but even so, some of the officers did not understand everything he was saying, and occasionally, even when they had indicated agreement, the message they passed on to the troops was, out of ignorance or malice, quite different from what he had asked them to say. The upshot was a complete jumble of uncertainty, distrust, and failed communication. Apart from everything else, the men assumed that the Carthaginians had deliberately chosen to send to negotiate with them someone who was completely unfamiliar with the services they had rendered in Sicily, rather than any of the generals who knew what they had done and who had promised them rewards. In the end, Hanno lost their respect, and the divisional officers lost their trust, and the enraged mercenaries set out against the Carthaginians and marched on the city. With the breakdown of communications at Sica, the Carthaginians at last grasped the gravity of the threat which faced them, as well as how their mistakes of gathering the mercenaries all in one place, and of releasing the mercenaries' families, had compounded the situation. Now, though, it seemed too late, as 20,000 battle-hardened mercenaries took up residence at Tunis. Desperate to avoid an open breach, the Carthaginians sent ambassadors from the Senate to assure the mercenaries that all was being done in their power to pay the requested sums. The new calculation was accepted as the proper amount owed, but the mercenaries then turned around and demanded to be compensated for the horses they had lost in Sicily, as well as the grain rations which they had not yet received, and which were long overdue. When the frightened Carthaginians gave in to these demands as well, the emboldened mercenaries began to invent more and more outrageous claims that could not possibly be fulfilled. Many of the soldiers sensed blood in the water, 
and, having faced the legions of Rome in Sicily, felt themselves more than a match for any citizen levy the Carthaginians could muster to oppose them. Despite this new arrogance, the men agreed to have one of the generals they had served under in Sicily act as mediator between themselves and the government. Hamilcar was currently out of favor with the mercenaries since he had not come to visit them, so they chose Gizgo to do the honors, since he had taken care of them when transporting the troops from Lilibaeum. Gizgo duly arrived with a large sum of money, and he gave a speech which, while sternly rebuking the mercenaries for their past behavior, offered the hope of reconciliation if they remained loyal to those who had hired them. He concluded with a promise that he would settle their accounts and pay them off contingent by contingent. Gizgo's speech produced a positive impression on the men, but these fledgling hopes of a peaceful resolution to the crisis were soon dashed to pieces by one of the Greek half-breeds, as Polybius terms them, in the mercenary camp. This man, who Polybius describes as a man of great physical strength and remarkable fearlessness in battle, was a companion slave named Spendius. Originally from Magna Graecia, he had deserted from the Roman army and now faced capital punishment should he ever be caught. Fearing that if the mercenaries disbanded, he would be handed back over to his master to be tortured and crucified, Spendius was a vocal opponent of any settlement with Carthage and continually stirred up dissent among the old soldiers. His comrade Matho, a Libyan, seconded Spendius in his rabble-rousing, though for different reasons. Matho had been one of the prime instigators of the dispute, and he felt that, once the mercenaries laid down their arms and went home, he would be singled out for punishment. His arguments found willing hearers among the Libyan troops, who feared that, as Matho warned, once their allies departed overseas, they would be left alone to bear the brunt of Carthage's wrath due to the recent rebellion. Another disaffected officer, Odoritus, the leader of the Gauls, wholeheartedly threw himself into the plot and became an able lieutenant of Spendius and Matho. Despite Gizgo's assurances to the contrary, the mercenaries believed the words of their demagogues that Carthage would never pay. Soon, they were in open revolt. Accusing Gizgo of withholding funds due as a recompense for the lost horses and grain, Spendius and Matho summoned a hasty assembly of all the mercenary troops. There, they leveled numerous charges against the Carthaginians, and Gizgo in particular, denouncing them as liars who had betrayed the mercenaries in the end. If anyone stepped forward to address Spendius and Matho, the mercenaries unceremoniously stoned them to death without even waiting to hear whether the speakers were for or against the mutineers, and several officers and men lost their lives. In fact, Polybius states that, the practice of stoning was so common that the phrase stone him became the only words in any language that were universally understood. It was especially common if they held a meeting drunk after the midday meal. As soon as anyone raised the cry, stone him, stones flew from all directions so thick and fast 
that escape was impossible for anyone who had already stepped forward to speak. This practice understandably put a damper on anyone's willingness to express themselves, and Spendius and Matho soon found themselves the elected generals of the revolting mercenary army. Meanwhile, Gizgo, although aware of the chaos in the camp, heroically refused to abandon his post of trust and continued to hold meetings with the leadership or convene meetings of the ethnic contingents in attempts to defuse the situation. On one occasion, however, the Libyans approached him and roughly demanded that he pay them the full amount that was due. Angered by their imperious manner, Gizgo retorted that they should go ask General Matho for their money. This sent the Libyans into a fit of rage, and they seized Gizgo and began looting his possessions and those of his Carthaginian entourage. Secretly rejoicing in this outbreak of hostilities, Spendius and Matho encouraged their men in these lawless acts by placing Gizgo in chains and mistreating him and his comrades. Now that his followers were in full revolt, Matho sent messengers to the nearby Libyan cities with offers of alliance, saying that they should make the most of the situation with a bid for liberty to throw off the Carthaginian yoke. Nearly all of his countrymen who received his message responded enthusiastically to the offer, since the Libyans had been harshly treated by the Carthaginian governors and tax collectors during the First Punic War. In order to support the massive expenditures of the war, the Carthaginians required the Libyans to give half of all their agricultural produce to the state, while simultaneously doubling the taxation of the Libyan towns and cities. Every tax was exacted to the fullest, without any concession for the poverty or misfortune of the inhabitants. Rather, Carthaginian governors such as Hanno the Great prided themselves on their efficiency in collecting huge amounts of supplies and materials that they were able to deliver to Carthage at the expense of their subjects. This policy of harsh taxation now came back to haunt Carthage. The Libyans rose in revolt, the men taking arms and joining the mercenaries, while the Libyan women melted down their gold jewelry to supply the rebels with enough funds to not only pay off the entire amount due to the men, but also to keep paying their regular salaries for the foreseeable future. Polybius reports that 70,000 Libyan men joined Matho's army. With their ranks swollen by the revolting tribesmen, the rebels immediately set about securing their camp at Tunis and besieging Hippo Acra and Utica, the latter city barely 25 miles from Carthage herself. In contrast to Matho's boost in manpower and money, the Carthaginians found themselves in dire straits. In one stroke, the revolt of the Libyans cut Carthage off from the farmlands on which she depended for her food and the secession of tribute meant that she could no longer supply the necessary numbers of military arms and equipment. Worse, not only were these resources denied to Carthage, as they had been during the invasions of Agathocles and Regulus, but now they were actively employed against her by her own army. The Carthaginians had hoped that the peace would at least allow them an opportunity to rebuild their lands and restore their prosperity but it was not to be. 
starvation, bankruptcy, and the destruction of their entire civilization suddenly became a very real possibility. At this critical moment, when the Carthaginian fortunes were at their lowest ebb, help arrived from the most unexpected quarter. Hiero, king of the traditional enemy Syracuse, responded to Carthage's pleas for assistance by readily supplying them with the money and grain they so desperately needed. Polybius notes approvingly that Hiero did this less from altruistic purposes than from a desire to keep Carthaginian power relevant as a counterbalance against Rome. Should Carthage disappear from the scene, reasoned the cunning Syracusan, his status as an ally of Rome may no longer be necessary, making him dispensable. In such an event, Hiero knew that his independent rule might follow the demise of such an alliance, so he decided to lay aside the old quarrels and place the substantial resources of his kingdom at Carthage's disposal. Even with the support of their frenemies Syracuse, the Carthaginians possessed no citizen army or mercenary force sufficient to combat or even challenge the rebels due to their own leader's negligence. A hasty call went out for emergency mobilization. All males of military age were drafted into the ranks. A citizen cavalry corps was formed. Money was cobbled together for new mercenary recruits and the few triremes and quinqueremes Carthage still had in her possession were refitted and launched for the coming campaign. Command of the army went not to Hamilcar Barca, who was to remain quietly at home, but to Hanno the Great. In addition to his victories in the African interior, Hanno had recently crushed a minor revolt among the Libyans, and so he set out confidently with his raw force to relieve the siege of Utica. Upon arrival, Hanno ordered all the siege equipment and baggage to be brought out from the city and placed in front of the walls. Having done this, he attacked the rebel camp with his detachment of a hundred war elephants. Thrown into confusion by the charging of these roaring war beasts, the mercenaries withdrew to their camp, but they found no safety there. The elephants broke through the stockade and crushed many of the rebels beneath their thundering feet. Matho and Spendius were forced to withdraw to a nearby defensible hill. Thinking that he had won a victory which would end the war, Hanno promptly returned to the city of Utica without making any arrangements to encamp his army, leaving his men to fend for themselves. His field experience against the Libyan and Numidian tribes, who made a habit of dispersing to the countryside following a great defeat, gave him the impression that all he had to do was show up the next morning and claim his victory. However, the mercenaries were not Libyan peasants or Numidian tribesmen, but hardened veterans who had been schooled under Hamilcar Barca in the tactics of guerrilla warfare. As Hanno retired into the city, his men, left leaderless, wandered carelessly about the enemy camp and countryside as they pleased. Seizing the opportunity, the mercenaries poured down from their hilltop upon the disordered Carthaginian citizens, cutting them down in droves. The survivors fled headlong into Utica, with the mercenaries pursuing them 
right up to the walls. There, they captured all the siege equipment and baggage that Hanno had ordered out of the city, completing the disgrace of the day. In spite of this setback, the Carthaginians remained confident that Hanno could bring an end to the revolt. It would take two more debacles before the Carthaginian populace clamored to have Hamilcar reinstated as commander over their forces. Why Hamilcar had not played a larger role in the preliminary stages of the crisis is uncertain, with theories ranging from him being in disgrace due to the loss of Sicily to him merely wishing to bide his time and avoid an open breach with Hanno's oligarchical party. Whatever the reason, once he was back in command, Hamilcar displayed the energy and daring which had previously won him fame in Sicily. After training his army of 10,000 men, mostly made up of mercenary deserters and Carthaginian citizens, as well as 70 elephants, Hamilcar marched to the aid of Utica. Matho held all the fords across the Bagratus River with detachments of rebels, and he had heavily fortified a position which blockaded the bridge over the river. The mouth of the Bagratus River overflowed its banks, making a passage impracticable not only for an army such as Hamilcar's, but even for single individuals. Nevertheless, Hamilcar had noticed that when the wind blew in a certain direction, the water receded just enough to allow a crossing via a sandbar at the mouth of the river. Keeping this knowledge to himself, Hamilcar held his troops in readiness until the wind appeared again, and under cover of darkness, led his troops across the river. The following morning, the rebels found to their dismay Hamilcar and his little army on their side of the river. Hamilcar had effectuated a crossing without raising a single alarm. This crossing of the Bagratus is even more impressive considering that Hamilcar had to move not only a substantial number of men, but also his 70 elephants across a sandbar, which, though fordable due to the favorable wind, was still covered by deep water and swift currents. We might almost say that this crossing of the Bagratus with elephants foreshadowed the more famous crossing of Hamilcar's son, Hannibal, over the Alps with elephants. And it is easy to imagine where Hannibal got the inspiration for his more audacious marches. If Hamilcar's crossing of the Bagratus anticipated Hannibal's movements over the Alps, his strategy in the battle which followed hinted at his son's brilliant achievements on the battlefields of Italy. Alarmed by Hamilcar's crossing, Spendius led a detachment of rebels 10,000 strong from his fortified position by the bridge of the Bagratus. Concurrently, another force of 15,000 mercenaries arrived on the opposite side from the siege of Utica. Imagining that he now had Hamilcar trapped, Spendius marched his troops to the attack. Hamilcar had deployed his elephants in the vanguard, followed by his cavalry and light troops with the heavy infantry bringing up the rear. As the massive rebel force poured towards them, Hamilcar ordered his cavalry to withdraw to the rear, where the heavy infantry opened up intervals for them to pass through. Such a move was risky, considering that the enemy was nearly upon him, but Hamilcar had drilled his men in this maneuver at Carthage. 
as he anticipated. Spendius and the rebels took the Carthaginian withdrawal as a full-blown retreat, and they broke ranks and charged haphazardly upon the heavy foot. Now Hamilcar sprung his trap. While his heavy infantry closed ranks and advanced with weapons leveled, Hamilcar's cavalry whirled around the flanks and attacked the disordered rebels. The mercenaries, startled by this unexpected move and terrified by the sight of Hamilcar's army advancing towards them in good order, soon broke and fled. As the foremost rebels turned to flee, they collided with their own men coming up from behind, and a general rout ensued. The Carthaginian elephants and horsemen trampled down the retreating enemy, and by the end of the day, 6,000 rebel mercenaries lay dead, while a further 2,000 were taken prisoner. Without wasting any time, Hamilcar followed up his victory at the Bagratus River by capturing the rebel camp at the bridge. He then besieged several Libyan towns, some of which he was able to convince to return to their allegiance. Most, however, remained adamant and had to be taken by storm. With Carthaginian spirits soaring after these victories, Spendius recouped his losses. Gathering a force of 6,000 men, including a formidable band of 2,000 veteran Gallic warriors under Autoritus, Spendius shadowed Hamilcar's movements. A little while later, two armies of Libyan and Numidian reinforcements unexpectedly arrived to aid the rebels, surrounding Hamilcar's position on three sides. While considering how to get out of this predicament, Hamilcar was surprised by a small band of a hundred Numidians which appeared outside his camp. The newcomers showed no sign of fear, but their leader, a young chieftain, beckoned with his hand for someone to come out and meet him. When the herald duly arrived, he discovered that the young man was Nerevis, a Numidian chief with ties to the Carthaginian elite. He explained that he had always admired the Carthaginian way of life, and he regarded Hamilcar with special esteem and would like to meet him. Hamilcar was suspicious at first, but Nerevis, leaving his spears and javelins behind, boldly approached the camp alone and unarmed. Impressed by the young man's courage, Hamilcar met with Nerevis, and the Numidian told him that he wished to join his force with Hamilcar's in every enterprise and endeavor. Hamilcar was so pleased with the young chieftain's bearing that he not only allowed him to join his army, but promised Nerevis his daughter's hand in marriage should the Numidian remain faithful to Carthage. Bolstered by this new Numidian ally, Hamilcar led his troops down into the plain to face Spendius once again. The battle which followed was stiffly fought, but Hamilcar's elephants and Nerevis's 2,000 Numidians proved a decisive advantage. Both Autoritus and Spendius escaped in the confusion of the defeat, but a further 10,000 of their men fell, and 4,000 were taken prisoner. Following these two victories, Hamilcar showed that he was an astute politician as well as a formidable tactician. Intent on seducing as many rebels away from Spendius as possible, Hamilcar showed great clemency to the rebel prisoners who had fallen into his hands, allowing any of those who wished 
to join his army and supplying these new soldiers with arms stripped from their former comrades. Those who did not wish to take service with him were pardoned and allowed to go free, but Hamilcar sternly warned them that if he found any of them bearing arms against Carthage again, they would receive no mercy. Spendius, Matho, and Autoritus viewed Hamilcar's cunning gamble with alarm. An offer of a general amnesty threatened to break up the fragile bond which held the mercenary coalition together. However many of the rank and file may avail themselves of immunity, the mercenary leaders knew that they could expect no leniency due to their roles in the rebellion. If they wished to avoid such a result, they would have to bind their men to their own fate by some deed so heinous that the Carthaginians could never forgive it. They soon thought of a solution. The remaining mercenaries received notice of a general assembly. As the men gathered around, Spendius rose first and addressed the soldiers, advising them that Hamilcar only showed some mercy, not because he wished to spare their lives, but because he wanted to get the rest of them into his power to punish them all. Spendius also warned the men not to let the captive Gizgo out of their sight, since, were he loose, he could prove their most dangerous adversary yet. As prearranged, Autoritus followed this speech with his own, saying that the only safety for the mercenaries lay not in Hamilcar's offers of clemency, but rather in waging war to the last man. He also called upon the men to kill Gizgo and his retinue, along with any other Carthaginian who fell into their hands, from here on out, as a message that there could be no compromise with the enemy. As it turned out, Autoritus was the most compelling orator among the mercenaries, since, due to his long years of service with the Carthaginian army, he had learned to speak Punic, which served as a kind of lingua franca for the rebels. Since he was the most well understood of the leaders, he was also a favorite speaker among the men, and they greeted his proposals with applause. Even so, some men from each contingent disagreed with the suggestion that they should torture Gizgo, and these now came forward to request that he be spared due to his past service on their behalf. Unfortunately, they could not make themselves understood since they all spoke at once in their different languages. When the others learned that they requested leniency for the Carthaginian general, the fatal cry, Stone him, arose on all sides, and Gizgo's defenders soon lay dead in the assembly, their bodies, according to Polybius, looking as though they had been butchered by wild animals. With this last hope of pity extinguished, Gizgo and his ill-fated followers, 700 in all, were dragged out in chains and paraded about the camp with their arms bound behind them. Once outside the palisade wall, the mercenaries began their savage festivities by lopping off their prisoners' hands, starting with Gizgo's. They followed this with castration and further mutilation. Finally, after breaking their wretched prisoners' legs, the mercenaries threw their still-breathing victims into a deep pit one on top of the other, before burying all of them alive. 
as the crowning culmination of this hideous act, the rebels swore that any Carthaginian or Carthaginian ally who fell into their hands would suffer the same repulsive fate. When news of this depravity reached Hamilcar Barca, he knew that the time for compromise was over. Henceforward, there would be no quarter asked or given. What began as a pay dispute had escalated into a full-blown conflict, one that would shock even the ancients, a people inured to a long list of atrocities and brutalities. In the words of Polybius, this was a polemis aspondus, a truceless war, a war without respite, without rules, and without mercy. Next time, we will see how Hamilcar Barca struggled to save a floundering Carthage from this wild rebellion in her midst by meeting savagery with savagery. Until then, take care and read more history. <laughs>